Hi, it's Demetrius. Hey, Demetrius, it's Mark. They're in. Nice. Taking it to the next level. Launching phase two of Gable Media on October 7th. 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 Hi there, I'm Evan Troxell. Welcome to my podcast about how technology is changing the architectural profession. Welcome back to the Troxell Podcast. My name is Evan Troxell, and in this episode, I am extremely happy to be talking with my friend Rosa Shang. Rosa joins today to talk about the future of our profession from a justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion perspective. And we also go into so much more. Uh, who's Rosa Shang? Rosa T. Shang, F-A-I-A, is principal and the director of equity, diversity, and inclusion at Smith Group. She is also the founder of Equity by Design and 2018 past president of AIA San Francisco. Throughout the years, Rosa has led a variety of award-winning and internationally acclaimed projects while launching a national movement for equitable practice, just and inclusive design outcomes in the built environment with a focus on higher education learning and space resources for student success. Rosa has delivered continuing educational programs and thought leadership outreach featured in Architect Magazine, Metropolis, Wall Street Journal, TEDx Philadelphia, South by Southwest, NPR, and Can Lions. In 2019, she was recognized as a Metropolis game changer. So all of those accolades just begin to speak about the powerful nature of Rosa Shang, and she really is a role model for so many within the architectural and AEC professions and beyond, quite honestly. So I couldn't be more happy than to bring you my conversation with Rosa Shang. Rosa Shang, welcome to the podcast. It's so great to talk to you again. Yes, likewise, Evan. It's been a while. Yeah, I think uh, the last time we talked, it was also during pandemic times. It was at the at that uh, Arcast 2020, and and I guess that's kind of what led to this. Was it was because we just kind of scratched the surface about diversity, inclusion, equity, uh, justice, and it was kind of a 101 class. I'll put a link to that video podcast in the show notes, but um, it was kind of a primer and. I think both of us said, you know, we could have continued to talk about this for for quite a long time and get beyond just that surface kind of stuff and get a little bit deeper. And since then, oh my gosh, everything has kind of just gone bonkers. Gone bonkers. That's a great way to put it because I was like searching for a word. <laughs> and so, so yeah, I mean, the cur- current events. There's just so many things that have kind of happened since we last chatted, and I know that that's been on your mind too, right? It has. It has. Um, so much so that it's kind of given pause, but it's taken this long, I think, throughout the entire year to, it's almost like trauma has happened and then you have to kind of unwind and unravel the trauma that has happened. But then the trauma has happened multiple times throughout the year, right? Yeah. Yeah. The scabs I, just won't go away. <laughs> the scabs just won't they go away. They just won't heal. Yeah. So in a very probably a more of a negative way to look at, but then I'll take it to the positive is that we're mourning the death of the life as we knew it. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. And we're still trying to um, reinvent and to be persistent and find the upswing or, you know, in in what's been taught to us is always like, okay, well, the glass is not half empty. It's half full. What is the half full part? What, how can I reset from what's happened and move on? Mm. Right. But each time we try to do that, there is yet another trauma and we're reeling from it. And then again, there's this, what do I do now? And then what do I do now? Right. Right. Over and over again. And so talk about like beyond the physical traumas that have happened, the mental health impact Mm. for us collectively as a society has to be just again, bonkers. Right. Right. In terms of um, not only what we think is the reality, but also even in the political, uh, the social media arena, et cetera, 
there's a disintegration of what's reality, right? Absolutely. This kind of fake news, um, double speak and information mix up, et cetera. And the lines are getting blurred and blurred and blurred. Um, even though we still think we have a true north, it's been questioned and, and then it's frustrating to watch it happen in front of you. Yeah. And and it seems to me like now the culture is so there, there's such a constant flood of quote unquote information and the inf- doesn't doesn't really state whether it's it's truth or not. Right. But it's there's such a flood that all people can tend to do is scratch the surface with that and just read the headlines. And now the headlines are informing the way people are thinking. And there's not a lot of depth to any of that. And so when we find ourselves having to deal with these new situations all the time and kind of find out what's going on, we still don't even have really the, or I, mean, I, I guess we've kind of trained ourselves to not have the ability to kind of dig in and, and really find out what's actually happening um, because yes. there's so much competing for your eyeballs. And uh, it, that, that to me is pretty scary as well because we don't, um, number one, have the ability to kind of discern because we're not digging in and number two, um, to get away from it because the, it, we're just constantly inundated from all sides. Information overload. Yeah. 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 So the other thing that's interesting, um, I think we t- started talking about this. I coined the term, Jedi, justice, equity, diversity, inclusion at the event uh, that you had. And people were questioning what that was. Mm -hmm. And if anything, the moniker is more of a a way or a clue for people to truly dig deeper into these issues that we're experiencing. And so I asked the question of a lot of people, what do George Floyd, the pandemic, the uh, fires and natural disasters, if you will, uh, hurricanes, et cetera, have in common. Hmm. I've been thinking about it for a while, but it kind of dawned on me in the last couple of days. There's two major themes. One is this immediate um, thought of suffocation or lack of breath, right? So Mm -hmm. with George Floyd, he was suffocated Mm -hmm. in a violent act. With the pandemic, not only is there the fear of breathing in aerosol contaminants, you know, infecting us with the COVID disease, but that it is primarily a lung uh, debilitating disease, right? Mm -hmm. And with the fires, it, you know, again, it's the air we breathe and it's putting um, that breath at risk. And then with potential hurricanes, it's drowning, Right. right? Right. And then leading, you know, correlating to the breath or the lack thereof, that suffocation is our ability to thrive, mm. right? That there's this existential crisis. While we always, as humans, will have this desire to thrive and to persist, it is really challenging that. Right. And it brings up bigger questions for me about, well, what the hell am I doing every day in the profession? Yeah. Right? Or the things that I thought were valuable, even with equity by design and what we started in 2014, we had this like reality check to ourselves was like, are we doing the right thing? Are we doing enough? Cause it didn't feel like enough yeah. when George Floyd died, mm. you know, not even close. Mm. Right. And then with each calamity that has happened since it has been the same question, like, what are we doing? Is it even relevant anymore? Right. And, and then if you start to kind of extrapolate, well, I guess you, you said it uh, in the profession itself. Right. Uh, yes. Because a lot of the the projects that we work on affect greater communities, right? Especially in, in the t- types of practices that you and I work within, where a lot of it's public work, a lot of it's community based, and it does more than just affect one family or or a very small group of people, like a, like a residential home. Not not to say that that's lesser in any way, but just like it's a different type of project, and it has a different effect on communities. And I think that questioning that you're talking about is, is very appropriate because I think we are starting to kind of rethink or, or at least it's, it's putting into the question why we do what we do, why we do it, how we do it. um, And, and what are those effects that, that things can, that our projects that we're involved in can have on the greater communities that we serve? Um, Because that's a huge uh, responsibility. It is. 
And it's questioning that sense of purpose or, you know, whether or not the the purpose is being fulfilled at the capacity it needs to be fulfilled in the immediacy that it needs to be Oh, fulfilled. man. Right? Yeah. Deep thoughts. And- yeah. Yeah. In a, in a profession that doesn't move very quickly, uh, not, not only <laughs> in our own evolution, uh, we move very slowly in our own evolution, but in just the pace of a project in general, they don't move very quickly. And so when you're talking about now the ability that we need to have to change fast because uh, there's so many things coming that we haven't seen coming or have refused to acknowledge are coming. Um, and now all of a sudden the needs are real right now. That's a very hard adjustment to make to something with so much uh, momentum that's been kind of plugged into it since, you know, for decades and decades and decades. Yes. And it's also the realization that everything is interconnected. So you can't look at racism as an isolated thing. You can't look at climate change as an isolated thing or climate crises Mm -hmm. or, you know, the migrant issue of people, mass migrations, because giant areas of the U.S. are being devastated. And then related to that is the mental and physical health that we talked about. Everything that's happening to us simultaneously is happening, I think, for a reason. And that's to like scream at us that everything's interconnected. Mm. And when we look at things as silos or we we get kind of enticed by the shiny object, whether it's money or awards or being innovative or creative or, you know, being the bleeding edge of like AI or, you know, where technology is taking us, we fall prey to when it's unregulated, I think, and and we don't think it through in an ethical impact kind of way. Mm -hmm. We end up harming ourselves, not Mm -hmm. just harming others. And uh, I think that realization came through. I was watching a documentary the other night called Social Dilemma with my family. And it kind of has the insiders look from each of the major social media companies, Facebook, Google, Twitter, you know, on down the line of how they intentionally had written these algorithms to not only draw and keep your attention, but it thrived on polarity and bifurcating our beliefs. And so the more extreme the beliefs, the more clicks one would get are the more like little affirmations one would get. It's kind of like the lab rats where they put the little food pellets and then it's this kind of sensory satisfaction thing. Right. Only to realize my God, like how much my life has been altered or distracted with things that, you know, should be in my control, but are kind of out of my control and then slowly, but surely out of my family's control. Yeah. So with that kind of in your face, (laughs) <laughs> presentation that 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 documentary gave to you what what changed in that moment for you if anything I mean I I the catch 22 because while it was and is kind of ruining my life and I have to I've done certain things even immediately after that like turning off the notifications on my phone mm-hmm. so it doesn't being every other second right mm-hmm. with people contacting me um but on a macro level thinking how I've benefited or even um, utilized social media to, I, I, I believed, you know, advancing the purposes for good, right. In terms of advancing equity or daylighting racial injustice, mm-hmm. et cetera. And I, I continue to do so, but also acknowledging and limiting the draw to be sucked into the affirmation part of it, yeah. right. Yeah. The how many likes I get, or, Oh, this right. has so many comments because it becomes more of a chore than its original benefit, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. I think, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up because the posting for likes thing is detrimental and designed to get you just to keep scrolling, right? I mean, that dopamine hit that you're talking about with the lab rats, is that is absolutely descriptive of, of our behavior with these yes. tools at our fingertips at all times. And so to me, as a personal example of something that I did recently, and I've continued to abstain from is posting anything at all to Instagram, which was, I was getting felt feeling like it was just too, it had too much of my attention. Um, and so when I went on vacation, um, you know, a lot of people before, right before I left were like, Oh, I can't wait to see what you experience. And 
you know, I fancy myself an amateur photographer. <laughs> I'm definitely an, an enthusiast, and I and I. I don't know if there's a huge point in taking photographs if no one's ever going to look at them, right? So there's there's that right. side of it. Um and then there's the side of it for me which is like it it's how I explore my art and does it really matter if other people see it or not? Um because I think at some point you do start posting things hoping that other people will like it. And I mean this is I'm not this is nothing new, right? Everybody's right. human nature. So I intentionally didn't do that on my three week trip, and I haven't done it since. Uh, the last photo that's on there you'll see is from a plate of food on my dining room table, <laughs> which is like to the point at which we get to, like right? we just start sharing everything. Yes. And there was there's not a lot of meaning behind that, and so in kind of a way to try to escape that, uh, I used this vacation as an excuse to do that, and. I do feel differently about it now, having abstained from it for four and a half, five weeks now. Um, That's great, and and it it is great. I, I absolutely have to say it is great, and I, I. But I also know how easy it is to fall back into it because I'm not providing meaning to anybody by posting my stuff to Instagram, and Instagram is designed to get me to go on Instagram more and no and nothing else. Right? It's not designed That's to connect right. me to my friends anymore. It may have been that in the beginning. I don't know. Um, but it but it is designed to get me to look at ads or buy ads on Instagram or to find out as much as it can about me and what I like so that it can be more targeted in that way. And, I mean, I would love to hear other examples of things like this that people do. Because, you know, I'm always surprised at this, at the ability for some people to, to not engage in that at all. Uh in yes. today's day and age, in the profession that we are in, and not that ours is alone, but like to speak to your earlier point, like at some level, you should be engaging in this. I put that in air quotes, okay? And on another level, like it's really bad for you. <laughs> so, yes. So, what's absolutely. the answer? Yeah, I don't know what the answer is, but what I think is it's the... knowing your limits, right? And even setting like time limits on how much you use it, right? Mm. Is it that you check it in? So you know, discipline is the answer. Discipline. Yeah. yeah. And intentionality of what you're putting out there. So like for equity by design, uh, for example, we're launching a workshop series. So and that has a scholarship component to it where the beneficiaries get three paid ARE exams. Right. Mm -hmm. Or we launch a scholarship program with um, Smith Group in terms of paying tuition and a paid summer internship. Of course, I want that to be on social media right. and I want those people that have the most need to get access to it. Right. So I think it's intentionality of when and where, but I shouldn't use it as because I'm bored or, you know, um, I can do other things, right? I can go for a walk. I can find a new recipe. I can spend time with my kids. I can read a book. Yeah. Right. What are all those other things that we used to do that the kind of deception of, oh, this is the, the thing to do instead of all those other things. Uh, how do you benefit from it really at the end of the day? You know, if anything, it just raises my anxiety level. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so then the kind of reframing all of this around the future of our profession and how do we... So one of the things that's come up a few times in recent conversations that I've been having with various people, whether it's on this podcast or Arcuspeak or in, in the office or whatever, is there's a lot of problems that all of our firms are struggling with that are the same yes. problems. And we continue to work on those in relative silos because, I mean, number one, that's maybe a little bit easier to manage, but you can't deny the fact that everybody's dealing with the same problems and there is a lack of dealing with them together as a profession and moving everybody forward together. And so how do you do that intentionally without getting mired in all of this other stuff so that, again, like you want to kind of open that conversation up like you were just talking about with these scholarships and internships. You want to open that up to get exposure so that it is kind of an equitable ask, right? Yes. And also within our profession, we're dealing with these same problems together, or we should, I wish we were dealing with the same. We are dealing with the same problems. We're not dealing with them together. How can we do that? How can we make an equitable ask and get the participation needed, you know, that diverse group of collaborators to make meaningful changes for our profession? Because 
it's changing rapidly and in serious ways, right? And we have to be dealing with those right now so that we are Absolutely. successful in the future. How do we do that in this really kind of divisively designed digital culture that is happening at the same time? That's a really tough. That's a tough question. Yeah. Absolutely. I think fundamentally, there's a lot that we could do to self-educate, right? Especially with technology for good. So I think having a position on technology where it's ethical and it's intentional and it's used for an inclusive outcome. Mm. So that's kind of my baseline. Like, am I doing it? How, you know, how am I using it? Is it ultimately for a greater purpose and who is it going to benefit? Mm -hmm. Right. And is, is it inclusive or exclusive? And then building upon that, like, how do I use that to expand the understanding of why we are trying to go towards a more just and equitable paradigm, if you will, in order to uh, realize diverse and inclusive outcomes, right? And a lot of people talk about diversity and think of it as, again, just fairness or giving the same, you know, opportunities to black and brown people, right? Mm -hmm. Or in the current terms, it's called BIPOC. So black indigenous people of color. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason for that order as well, which is, um, you know, if you look across our nation, black and indigenous people have suffered the worst mm. in terms of not only the slavery, but their land taken away mm -hmm. and um, intentional, even to this day, things that are built into the planning and laws of our nation that harm those particular populations. Mm. And then related to that is um, immigrants and people of color who have come to this country, but again, have been legally or in some way disenfranchised historically uh, examples being the Japanese internment camps, uh, the Chinese exclusion act, not many people know about that, but mm. it basically banned immigrants from China for a hundred years early in the, in the uh, gold rush and railroad building days of our country. In addition to current modern time discrimination tactics for um, Latinx uh, and Mexican immigrants and also those from Middle Eastern countries, again, perceived as being dangerous, mm -hmm. right, and limiting their access to um, being part of this country. And so it's interesting that there wants to be an intentional, not only not acknowledging those past wrongs, but an intentional erasure mm -hmm. of those histories, because they pose a threat, I believe, to those that think that, well, if these other people get access to power and resources, it somehow diminishes mine. Yeah. Right. And then the wake up call, of course, is our current reality reality, which is a, there's a pandemic and that is non-discriminatory that's affecting everybody. Although the policies and procedures that are in place in our country, the infrastructure issues in our country exacerbate and do create more obvious biases to who's dying black and brown people. Because if you do the overlay, the disease itself is not discriminatory. But if you look at who gets access to care, who mm -hmm. gets denied care, who has the resources to take a day off from work, who has to go and be an essential worker, mm -hmm. uh, who has housing where they could self-isolate, and you know who has the economic means to take care of themselves when they do get sick, it's not black and brown people, mm. right? Because of these other inequities. Um, of housing, et cetera, that happened to us. And then people ask, well, what? that's not in our control, especially in the built environment, but we have a lot of influence. Um, that's habitation and an enclosed domicile is like 90% of our lives is in a building of some kind, whether right. it's a house, an office, a store, a third place. And by the way we design those spaces or designate who is deserving to be in those spaces based on their affordability, we are part of the problem. Mm -hmm. And so the historical lack of representation in the architecture profession being predominantly white still, mm -hmm. predominantly male, um, you know, there was this, uh, so Whitney Young had a very famous speech where he basically shamed AIA for not being more diverse. That was like in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. And here we are, 2020, and not much has changed. Yeah. And people wonder, no wonder why we have all these issues the way, way we have them. There is a disregard, even for the perceivably virtuous 
topics of sustainability and resiliency, it's still pretty isolated to who it's being, who is benefiting from those primary missions, right? Even though the climate crisis is about the whole planet, the systems of getting clear, clean air and access to clean water, et cetera, in the policies and practices that we have are still cost-driven and prohibitive to who gets access. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of topics that that this kind of brings to mind. The first one is like we, actually three. So the first one is, and I think I brought it up on this podcast before, so this might not be new to the listeners of this, but this might be new to you, is the data that I've seen has shown that architects have influence or touch 1% of the global built environment. And if you, so like all the buildings in the world, it includes any, any mm-hmm. structure, right? So that's a, that's a, a very small slice of the pie. And if you think about who pays for that 1%, it's the 1%, right? So right. Uh, it's a, it's a very small percent of, the, of that. It's a very small percent of the population who can afford or chooses to pay for architecture to happen, which I think we would, you and I would probably agree that architecture can make a difference in the way that people live, work, um, the way that they their outlook can be towards society, the way that, that then enables them to contribute in a certain way to society, potentially. And I think for the corner that we've painted ourselves into is overlooked. Like People don't really see it that way. But that's yes. the data that shows kind of where we are and the, and the influence that we have over the built environment. It's not a lot. It's very little. And, and to me, that's pretty alarming to think about it that way because there is so much on the table, um, yet we continue to kind of whittle away even at that 1% of the 1% to undercut yes. each other and to compete all the way down to, I would say that that competition extends to the individual within an office. Yes. Right. So now you're talking about for me to win, you have to lose. Um, when you when you have on other podcasts that we've done on in Arcaspeak or anywhere else, you've talked about the difference between equity and equality, and um, kind of giving people the right tools to accomplish what needs to be accomplished, rather than the same tools to everybody. And I think that what that really speaks to is something that is kind of just programmed into us at a very human level, is that. We are not all on the same team. We don't think like that. Correct. And that then extends into our offices. It extends into our profession and extends into all the levels above that, our communities and and so on and so forth. And so, I mean, a lot of the things that you're fighting for with the the Jedi initiatives, um, it doesn't give me a lot of hope because... Because you have to completely change your mindset, and that is that we should all be on the same team. And so evolutionarily, are we all on the same team? I just start to question that. And if we aren't, our, basically our existence is at threat, right? Yeah. Um, this year has shown us that if we are not working together, we're working towards each other's demise, and now to plug that back into your your social media documentary that you watched where things are intentionally trying to create division, further division, uh, and really play up on the chemical level uh, that our bodies operate at. For, yes, the polarity, yes, right? Yeah. The, and I have a, a, a theoretical solution to that, which is uh, linked to intersectionality as this idea that originated from Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, spreading this awareness that uh, we each have unique lived experiences and we're not these binary clusters of identification, like the invention of man and woman or male and female as this binary, Mm -hmm. the invention of race and ethnicity, right? And nationality. Those are all modern inventions. Yes. You know, race was invented. So people could be enslaved. Yes. Essentially, there could be a hierarchy or a pecking order by categorizing people, Mm -hmm. right? And so in this realization that our problems are intersectional, like that you can't look at climate crisis without looking at health impacts, without looking at the societal impacts, right? Or the other way around, you can't look at health without looking at the influences 
of like what neighborhood you live in, you know, which is caused by racist policies such as redlining. A lot of people do or don't know about that, but the outcomes of which we're still living with and experiencing today. So even though redlining isn't there legally anymore, the fact that we're brainwashed to see neighborhoods as either black or white neighborhoods or Asian or Latino neighborhoods and who belongs and who doesn't. So when we see a black person in a white neighborhood, we immediately suspect that they could be a criminal or dangerous, right? right? And I'm not saying that to be facetious, but let's dig deep down inside and ask ourselves that question, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And that kind of raises the fact that you do research of how many with you, I guess one benefit of social media now is that people are getting videotaped doing these wrong things. And therefore we have evidence of it for people to change their minds and believe that it's actually happening. Right. <laughs> yeah. What's, what's interesting. I, I, I heard somebody put it this way. It's not an original thought. It was that, you know, as soon as everybody had a camera in their pocket, it basically just exposed the behavior that was always there. I mean, a that lot was of, always there. Yeah. So a lot of people think like this is new behavior, but it's just that you hadn't been exposed to it all the time before because there weren't cameras in everybody's pockets. Yes. Yeah. And so back to the intersectional proposition, which is yes. And mm. right. It's like design thinking. It's like, well, why can't we prioritize black lives matters while we also hold important BIPOC rights while we also lift up LGBTQIA uh, representations mm-hmm. instead of this polarity. Well, you can only pick one, right. right? Right. You can only pick one thing to care about or be important to you. And if you don't pick one thing, then you're in the wrong, right? Right. And we'll never win that way. We will never win this life with that kind of mindset. So I'm trying to get people to drink from the well of intersectionality. Yeah. <laughs> because I think it is part of the solution making. Um, it'll break down the silos when we when our minds can be more fluid in making connections. Right. And I we're seeing that. that with like STEM education and the the trends towards STEAM education, which I love. Mm-hmm. Uh, a truly arts integrated STEAM education where we're using all parts of our brain, even with architecture, if you think about it architects originally did everything yeah it wasn't just oh we do these pretty drawings and renderings but we had to curry favor with the client we had to plan things out we had to design it uh we had to potentially build it and then we had to take care of it on top of that right it wasn't just this one thing Mm. and i wish we could get back to that holistic mindfulness approach of thinking about these other parts even though our major or our specialty you know, is in this declarative area. But why can't we be anthropologists? Why can't I talk about the impacts of architecture on racism, right? How it perpetuates racism. Yeah. And I, I think if you if you really start to bring this back to what architects, the value of an architect is, to lead a client or a group through a process of complete uncertainty yes. to certainty, right? Uh, and And so when you can lead people through a process like that, there's a huge amount of value there. And so by saying yes and, and operating at the intersection of all of these variable topics and and things, it it seems to me that you are a more well-informed problem solver. And it's interesting because those that have been uh, trained in a traditional education to find the binary or the polar answer, they get frustrated with me. (laughs) <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I could imagine. They just want the answer. Yeah. They just want the step by step, step one, step two, step three. And as three. fast as possible. Yeah. Yes. And they don't want the exploration mm-hmm. or they don't want to, you know, necessarily know the spectrum or go down a particular rabbit hole to make, you know, two or three other connections. That's a very uncomfortable place to be. Yeah. <laughs> it is uncomfortable. Yes. And speaking of uncomfortable, that's another theme I've been working on with my uh, studio is getting comfortable with uncomfortable conversations. And we watched a Brene Brown video about shame and vulnerability. Yeah, I've seen that. It was actually very liberating. Was it her Netflix special? (laughs) It was her TED Talk. Yeah. Okay. The TED Talk is amazing. Yeah. She has a whole Netflix special on it as well. Oh, okay. It's really good. Very good. But we did this deep dive into shame and vulnerability, right? As a foundation of our interactions with each other. And 
Uh, the fact that we don't say things because of the fear of getting shut down or the retribution because of it. And think of how many great or brilliant solutions or ideas are snuffed right. because of that fear, right? And I think you've heard this story from me before, but like how I ended up in California was uh, we had a client for Pixar that ended up asking us the question, like, how are we going to get this project done faster and on schedule than is currently happening? And I, you know, had a couple of drinks, so my inhibition was down. And I said, oh, you can move us out to California. And that way we don't have to fly back and forth. And there's more of this seamless interaction and we get the design faster. Right. And everybody laughed at me and the client was like, that's a brilliant idea. Right. But could you imagine I didn't have the drinks or there was a psychological safety or I had a paranoia of being vulnerable that that would have never have happened. I wouldn't be talking to you. Right. That's amazing. <clears throat> Let's pause for a moment right here and talk about our episode sponsor, Layer App, the must-have app for Revit users. Are you tired of digging for project photos, files, and field data days, if not months, after it's captured? That's the power of Layer. Layer takes all your project-related data photos, and files and makes them accessible with the click of a button right in Revit. Find out more and start your free 14-day trial at layer.team slash Troxel. That's L-A-Y-E-R dot team slash T-R-X-L. By the way, if you want to listen to episode 280 of my friend Mark LePage's Entree Architect podcast, you can hear Mark's interview with Zach Soflin the architect turned software developer who created Layer App. Get your free trial at layer.team slash TRXL. And now let's jump right back into the conversation with Rosa Shang. So during this COVID time when people are all kind of, you know, I characterize it as a level playing field and it doesn't, not every category is is solved with that statement, but for on on many levels that previously it wasn't now it is right so uh, we don't have the uh, second class citizen of you know we've got people in the meeting room and people calling into the meeting room everybody's kind of dealing with the same issue at least in in our studios and I know in many others around the world have you seen positive things come out of that change that was kind of forced upon us both positive and negative so on the surface Absolutely. It seemed like we had um, this equitable access to working from home. Right. And then there weren't those that were judged or not from being in the office. Right. Um, But then when you scratch the surface, realizing that one's ability to pay for high speed Internet. Yeah. Is like an assumption. Yes, absolutely. Right. Or ergonomic office furniture. Not even a consideration by the company. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. People sitting at their on on their wooden dining room table chairs for months at a time or people who can only afford studio apartments in the city and don't have access to outside fresh air or green space right so at the same time that there is an equitable proposition there's also the hidden side that we constantly have to ask ourselves like who what am i not what's my blind spot pieces that were not even in play before right 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 yeah and that's with education too. Um, part of the bigger issues, like with higher ed or even K through 12, is the student that doesn't know how to use a computer or laptop because their family can't afford one. Yeah. And then they're borrowing it, and they don't have an isolated room that's sound isolated to have quality instruction and attention. Yeah. Because they're distracted by little brother or whoever, you know. And I've been distracted in that way to have empathy. Like, yeah, because we're everybody happens to want to be in the same room and it's like, I can't think. Right. And yeah, so there's definitely issues there. Um, On the other, on the flip side, um, talking about some of the positives, uh, we've had to reinvent how we engage people virtually. And (laughs) we've been very lucky with software and just being creative and thinking outside the box. Yeah. And um, there's a software called Mural, Mm M-U-R-A-L, that we've been experimenting with it's like a whiteboard tool, but 10 times better than Microsoft whiteboard. Sorry, Microsoft. Uh, but Sorry, not sorry. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> but in terms of design and helping the designer be a better communicator, the template of tools 
allows us to use it in ways to engage each other in these large crowds that even when you're on Zoom together in these large audiences, you're still limited. Everybody's on mute. It's hard to talk. It's even though you can write in the chat bar, it's still very limited in its engagement. Yeah. But with this mural board, you can have multiple users go in. It's like a post-it board, if you will, or you could put images in, you could draw arrows and ideate at the same time that, you know, multiple people are talking. And we've been able to do really great user engagement, you know, with that methodology. And also it's kind of the death of PowerPoint, which is I'm in a, in a, in an abstract way, like where we stopped using as much PowerPoint Mm -hmm. and we've done entire presentations in this like zoom in, zoom out kind of world. Much more interactive way. interactive and it's like a drone where you can literally zoom out to, for the 30,000 foot view and then you can zoom into a detail or a particular topic area of discussion. Yeah. I agree that there's certain tools that uh, you didn't know you needed um, because you never, like, again, that wasn't in play. Everybody would stand up around a table and roll out a thing, a trace and just start doing exactly what you're talking about. But now with everybody being isolated, you've got to find new ways. And like you said, think outside the box, get inventive about the way that you engage people so that they are part of the process and not just watching it on a screen happen somewhere else. Absolutely. Yeah. So we've been really fortunate in that the uh, clients that we have, mainly uh, higher ed you know, clients with students and mm-hmm. faculty have been very open to you know, being the guinea pigs, if you will, of this engagement strategy. Yeah. And we've gotten a lot of good feedback that it's working. So that's great. We've, it's a little, little more on the nerdy side, but we've actually had some great, great interactions with clients in a couple of different pieces of VR software because they were able to kind of quickly manipulate the hardware requirements to not need a VR headset to participate. So there there might be one or two people that actually do have that and they can jump in there with with their VR headset and get like the fully immersive experience. But then there's also the ability to pull it up on your computer and just watch it through the web browser and, and still be connected to audio and be able to draw on things with your finger on your iPad and interact maybe at a different level, but still it, it, it kind of opens that up for more people um, because a lot of times we're talking about spatial things at different points in the project that require that. And so it's really been useful to kind of offer an additional tool in, in addition to the whiteboarding stuff, which is typically just 2D. There is other stuff out there. So I'll put some links to those in the in the show notes as well. Absolutely. And even for, um, I think, at home with family members uh, trying to you know expose them to architecture and even to do some of those home remodel or renovation projects. I'm shameless that I use home designer or home design. Um, it's, it's funny because when we are renovating our house originally, my husband's like, when are you going to draw up the house? When are you going to draw up the house? I was like, I'm too busy saving the world. You draw up the house. So he's like, all right, I'm going to download this software. So he downloaded this, uh, I think it's home designer or home design. And then he drew up, he measured and drew up our entire house, you know, with existing floor plans scanned in, but he met my challenge and I was like, all right, oh, this is really <laughs> weird. He could put me out of my job. He surprised then, you. <laughs> yes. But then it also, it, it's catch 22 because what, at one end, architects are going to say, oh, that's going to put me out of a job. I, you know, somebody's drawing and, and eating my lunch, right? Um, but at the same time, it makes architecture and the exposure and the respect for it more accessible to the general public, mm-hmm. Right. In, in an engaged way. And I think it also raises the bar of like, what can we provide the evolution of what architects do and the services that we provide. So I think it's trending away from the drafting part of it. There's still the design part of it and you still have to understand scale and spatial priorities and all the factors that somebody has to consider in designing a house, right? Preemptively problem solving. But I think um, really honing in on kind of the critical problem solving and less of the protective nature of like somebody's getting you my lunch because they designed the software. Well, we know with technology happening, that's, you know, on a limited time clock, it's going to happen at cer- a certain point. Right. So why don't we be proactive and look for other value propositions? Absolutely. Yeah. I think the the 
software as like a disintermediator of of things that we have traditionally held sacred to our profession. I mean, the writing right. is on the wall. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, you can embrace it and move on to more important things, or you can continue to fight that. And eventually you'll just be, you'll lose. Yeah. And I think it makes it equitable too. So yeah, not everybody can afford an architect, but why can't they still appreciate and fundamentally learn about good architecture and good design? Yeah. Well, maybe we'll like, just kind of bring it back to one of the original topics. And I would love it if you could, for the last piece or last section of this podcast, talk about the justice angle of Jedi uh, and and where that kind of came from and where it's leading to. There's there's a lot of talk about climate justice. There's a lot of talk about social justice. I mean, it seems to me like the EDI part of Jedi really all points at the justice part um, because it really starts to point to what's right in the world. So I wondered if you could maybe take a swing at just expanding upon that and giving it straight from the source. Sure, absolutely. Um, justice was something that's been ruminating and um, an influencer is Brian Seeley Jr. of Colocate Design. We've been talking about design justice quite frequently and this idea that historically design has perpetuated injustice whether it's by intention, intentionality or ignorance mm -hmm. uh, through, again, policies and procedures and manifesting those policies and procedures, whether it was segregation, you know, in the past or redlining or in modern day septed. So uh, the ways of crime prevention in, you know, urban planning and environments actually, again, target certain groups of people for being perceived as the criminal element or unsafe you know, and, and then in doing so, um, you know, harming, harming people, but also harming communities uh, with that approach. So for us, justice is a priority um, for these multiple viewpoints, whether it's health justice or environmental or race, you know, race related justice. And the deeper dive to start, I think, is the priority, I think, is the human justice part of it, which is um, the current conversation about uh, black violence and anti-blackness, you know, historically. And it, again, it's that uncomfortable conversation that people don't feel comfortable talking about mm -hmm. or what we've been banned to talk about, you know, in, in the government, white privilege or white fragility, you know, and until we can get comfortable talking about these issues, justice is a, is like, I think the gateway to, to the uncomfortable conversation. So mm -hmm. people can say justice Right. And it means different things to different people. Um, it makes you feel good. It's a very uh, safe word to say yeah. the word. It's a right. safe word. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a safe word. Uh, but when we dig deep, it uncovers it makes us uncover the history of policies and practices that have harmed in order to reverse them. Mm -hmm. Right. And then in that Band-Aid approach, equity is there as the framework until the just situation or policy or practice happens mm -hmm. to alleviate the inequity. And that's why um, we're focusing on it. And so people ask, well, like, how can you design justice? What does that look like? So we're going to focus on that from our architecture lens. It's like, well, if we look at an, I mean, this is an exercise I do in workshops, but if you look at an inequity, like pick an inequity that happens, like uh, black violence, right? So police violence against uh, black and African-Americans who has statistically are more likely to get arrested or to be killed. Right. Yeah. And then you look at, again, who is who looks like they belong in a certain area that we've mentioned before and what perpetuates the suspicion that they don't belong. Mm -hmm. And again, it's that historical segregation of you're not in the black neighborhood. You're in the what the quote unquote white neighborhood because of segregation and therefore, you look out of place and you could be dangerous. Mm -hmm. Or in terms of um, job opportunities, like within architecture profession and the justice within that, do we have policies that inherently, uh, you know, the fact that there are uh, few or none uh, black or BIPOC uh, leadership, and, you know, we've done that self-evaluation and then you have to ask yourself, well, what are the policies and practices that perpetuate that from happening? Well, I recently learned that licensure came out post a civil war, right? Mm 
Mm-hmm. And there were, you know, there's Jim Crow and there's all these other, you know, just reapportionments of slavery in terms of, you know, arresting and once imprisoned, those that are incarcerated, they become indentured servants again. And I know I'm going down a rabbit hole, but I think there's this urgency to uncover why do we build jails and prisons? There's immediate action that we can take of the projects that we should be involved in or shouldn't be involved in. And I know it's controversial, but that's where we need to start. Should a, you know, there's detention centers for those that are uh, supposedly undocumented or enter the country illegally, but then they're housed in warehouses or privately funded converted structures that were never meant or designed to be housing for humans. Right. And then one asks oneself, well, that's not our business because that's with the legal issue or that's a law. Well, it's like, well, if we're all about health, safety and welfare, literally, right. Then we can't ignore it. Right. So I'll get off the soapbox. Well, I think, I think what you're pointing (laughs) at is, is a reactive instead of a proactive stance to a lot of that. It's like, well, we're going to take the work that, that comes to us. We're going to fulfill the needs of the client. We're going to, and, and I think that's, that kind of stems out of a, I don't know if it's a desire or just a, I don't know what the right word to use there is, but it's intentionally not being involved at the policy level of communities Correct. and society and the things that we actually do have a rather large impact upon uh, and not just to be, you know, at the mercy of the client's dollars. Uh, that to me is where we're really falling short. We have to be advocates, right, at, at the table uh, because those that don't have the voice to be at the table, it'll take years for them to get there. So what we can do, each, regardless of our background or our lived experience, if we recognize that there is an injustice or an inequity, uh, we could be the advocates or allies to undo that. Easy to say, hard to do, right? It's a burden, and, <laughs> and that's what makes you a leader. But I think that's what is the burden of a leader, is to make those, basically to, to create a place in which it, you are you're willing to stand and then and then continually doing that and not backing down from that. But that is that is a big burden. Um, and I, that's why a lot of people do shy away from it. Right. And I think that 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 extends on many different levels of leadership. But that that's a we're kind of talking about big capital L leadership there. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it's not easy. <laughs> so when when at, at, at your firm, at other firms, um, are there actionable items that people can take today to start to ask the right kinds of questions that lead to better outcomes so that we can get better together? Absolutely. I think fundamentally there's just education and training. Like if you don't know the terms, have, you know, read in circles. There's a book list that we started to create and we're going to launch that for equity by design, but how to be an anti-racist, uh, white fragility, the color of law, uh, about redlining. Those are all great, just base level readings, or even watch the podcast or get the you know summary of the book if you don't have time to read the book. But find out more about it before saying, oh, I think I know what it is. And then ultimately, with that education and getting on the same page with each other about what we're talking about, then it's going through and auditing our firms in terms of what policies have hindered people from advancing. So we're currently evaluating our promotion and our recruitment policies mm-hmm. and asking ourselves those tough questions. like And hiring does, policies, I assume. And hiring well. policies, yeah. yeah. Uh, but does requiring licensure for advancement to associate hinder certain people when we know categorically it's been harder for um, Black uh, candidates taking the licensure exam to get licensed? Mm-hmm. And once you start digging, you can't, you can't stop finding the things that are creating the inequity, right? And so there's a lot of work to do. I ask people not to be discouraged. You just got to pick a thing and start with a priority. So we picked promotions and uh, the, the evaluation criteria as the top answer. And then we've also, we did the scholarship right away. You know, that's low hanging fruit is like just support and recruit the BIPOC talent, you know, black talent. And then also, you know, beyond that is the awareness of, again, the training and uh, in anti-racism, but also how it applies to practice. If we can get that foundation, uh, the sky's the limit. 
you know, we can do all the other things such as getting projects that reflect that kind of community service and engagement. Um, we can, you know, do the right type of stakeholder engagement where we actually hear what the challenges are of the people that we're serving. And, um, you know, I think the rest goes from there. But if we don't start with those basics of what are the terms that we're using? How do they, you know, even the entourage, you know, this is an, another low hanging fruit thing. When we put entourage, which is for the people that aren't in the architecture profession, uh, the people in rem- renderings, most of them happen to be white, mm-hmm. right? They don't, they perpetuate the white world and the people who don't belong being a nefarious or criminal element, right? Versus yeah. normalizing that we are being uh, becoming a more diverse society as we speak. And by 2045, we will be majority diverse mm-hmm. in the U.S., well, I, I don't want to, I don't really want to <laughs> shift gears away from this, but I, I, I do want to get into something that I ask all of my guests. And I think it, I, I guess the way that I'll transition is, is say, how do you do it, Rosa? Like you're, you're such a big champion. You're outspoken about this for all the right reasons. And so what do you do f- to help yourself perform better or to, to even attempt to tackle something this big? Um, Good question. Great question. I think I've said this before, maybe a long time ago, but eating the whale, and I know it sounds gross, but it's more of um, a figurative way to say that you can't solve a problem overnight. You have to chip away at it, right? And that's helped keep the sanity because you could quickly get discouraged and frustrated every day. I'm not eating enough entire whales. Yeah. Yes, or we could collectively eat the same whale and get to a solution faster. So if everybody did a little part, we'd solve the problem faster. So I guess that's my call to action for everyone is what is that low-hanging fruit thing that you feel like, okay, I could do this one thing, like vote, right? (laughs) That seems like a low-hanging fruit. We could all vote. Regardless of who you pick, take the action to vote, right? Exercise your right if you have that right. I think I think a lot of people probably see somebody like you and they're like, I could never be like Rosa. I could never be. And and what's interesting to me is to think about it a completely different way, which I think ties into what you're talking about, which is don't compare yourself to somebody else. Compare yourself to who you were yesterday. And that comes right out of a book. Absolutely. Uh, right out of a book that I, I listened to on my my previous my vacation called 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. But it's it's a very appropriate way to think. Uh, when you're thinking about eating the whale, it's one bite at a time. If you can get 1% better every day, that's a lot of percent by the end of the year, right? Amen. And yes. if other people are contributing to that cause as well, you will get there faster. And that is basically, you know, the whole idea behind exponential growth, right? Like it it just, it's compounding over time. It's compound interest. Yes. And also the philosophy of being kind to oneself. I've tried to be come kinder to myself (laughs) because even though I do do so much, I think I chronically have this, I didn't do enough. Like at the end of the day, there's this um, sense of failure, like I haven't done enough. Right. And so it's been a slow shift. Uh, I still feel that way, but kind of to counter that as a potential to trigger depression, because that could overwhelm you is to uh, be grateful and celebrate the, vic- the small victories, right, of each day. Yeah. And that gratitude or that celebration of gratitude, even of the simple things in life, like, oh my gosh, my tomato plant that I planted from, you know, a store-bought tomato, it actually, it sprung up and it, now we have some tomatoes. Yay. <laughs> I, I totally agree with you. It was an experiment, right? Yeah. And so it's appreciating the simple things in life and not taking myself too seriously and just being authentic and being vulnerable, like I'm not perfect. I'm, I'm not a superhero. Like I, I aspire to be a superhero, but I fail quite often. And I'm the first one to admit it, you know, and I think that kind of grounds me and my family grounds me. And so it's do what you can, right? And yeah. it's and definitely better than the that. day before. And I, then reward yourself. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think if you if you are going to take a bite of the whale, set up a reward for yourself before you do it, and then reward yourself. And what that actually does is reinforces that behavior that you want to see. Yes. Because if you don't take the time to reinforce that good behavior and to celebrate that that accomplishment, then you 
what's the likelihood you're going to try to repeat it over and over and over again? I mean, it's more likely that you're going to get tired of it and stop than it is to, you know, habits are hard to form. So I, I really, yes. I, I echo what, what you're saying here. And it's really important to celebrate those very small victories. And that can be a very small celebration. It doesn't matter, right? But it still needs to be a positive when you're keeping track of this stuff. Absolutely. Maybe we could do an app like uh, the Cub Scout or the Girl Scout badges, right? For Jedi. <laughs> a little hit of digital <laughs> dopamine, please. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you're awesome. <laughs> So, so okay, next question. Who who inspires you? Who are you reading? Who are you listening to to really get Rosa motivated or or what what's really catching your eyes or ears right now? Oh my gosh, there's so many, but I'm just kind of grabbing at the current topics related to I think what the things we talked about. So, I'm looking at uh Ibram X Kendi, right? Dr. Kendi's book of how to be an anti-racist. I've gotten through probably two thirds of the book, but I'm still going back and rereading parts of it um, so that I can really immerse myself and I and digest that. And then also uh, Michelle Obama's book, Becoming. There's so many great lessons about life and uh, that we're a work in progress, right? Back to that idea that if we could just get 1% better and that we're, we're an unfinished sentence, if you will. And that's the beauty of who we are. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing those too. I, I'm definitely going to include those in the show notes. I think that that's going to be required reading for me on my list too. Um, last question, and then uh, again, I I really appreciate you being so generous with your time and your ideas and sharing. Is where can people find you, follow you? What's going on with Equity by Design, Rosa Shang in general online? Oh my gosh, it's a catch twenty two because. I want um, people to be able to learn and benefit from all that we're doing. So eqxdesign.com is where our current information is. We've done three very significant research studies. So all that information is on there about equity in the architecture profession, but it also applies to um, other related, you know, uh, landscape architecture, built environment professions. Mm -hmm. And, um, you can find me on social media, but generally, again, as I've said, uh, I try not to respond to everybody and everything. So at Rosa Shang, no spaces or dashes or dots on Twitter. And same thing um, for, oh, well, for LinkedIn, I'm on LinkedIn, but at the current pace, I'm completely overwhelmed because there's so many requests and speaking opportunities. I have to pace myself. and. Sure. Um, I just pre-thank everybody who is inspired and reaches out. And it's not that I don't want to say yes, but if I say yes, I'm doing myself a huge injustice uh, because I would wear myself out and then I wouldn't be good to anybody. So if you don't hear from me, a big shout out and thank you to you for thinking of me. And I will, you know, refer you potentially to others that could help you or be just as amazing and talking about these issues. And, uh, you know, it's a it's a timing thing, right? So yeah. I try to do one or two things every month, but I try not to do more than that. I feel like you're you're similarly to me, and I'm not trying to compare myself to you, but <laughs> trying to live five lives at the same time because we only I get am. one, you know. And that to me is a distinction that I I make among people that that sit and passively watch life go by, or those who actively take the I don't know. Take the reins. Eat the whale. Yeah, eat the whale. (laughs) So thank you so much for what you're doing. I I think it's it's amazing. And thank you for your generosity today. And I, I appreciate it as always. My pleasure. Once again, a big thank you to the sponsor of this episode, Layer App, the flexible database for architects that makes it easy to view photos, files, and project data right in Revit. Remember, start your free 14-day trial at layer.team slash TRXL. Thanks for hanging out with us today. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A dot com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out and, of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. 
You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon. <laughs>